This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Today's guest is Josh Caterer guitarist and lead vocalist for the Chicago, Illinois rock band, The Smoking Popes. Together, we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite song, Megan, taken from their 1997 album, Destination Failure. Josh mentioned that Megan was written in 1992, a full five years before they recorded it, and he feels like it took all those years for him and the band to flush it out and get it to feel just right. I mentioned that the arrangement and instrumentation of the track are quite simple, but Josh later referred to the production as sparse, which I think is the better descriptor, as there was no need for an overblown production. And the lyrics. Wow. Josh takes us on a bit of a roller coaster, referencing an old movie that serves as the catalyst for the lyrics, and then going on to describe different scenarios to many of the lyrical references as to what they actually mean or could mean. Very cool. Oh, and he holds tremendous high praise for producer Jerry Finn for bringing it all together. For all this and a whole lot more, stick around. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, Josh. Hi, Chris. How's it going? Where where are you at right now? I am at my home in beautiful Aurora, Illinois. Aurora, Illinois. Well, I know my listeners, they have heard me talk about this before. My band made a, a, a career outside of Florida in the Chicago area in the 90s. The scene there was just, I mean absolutely incredible and you know everybody that you were running with we ended up knowing and you know reading the back of these records as a kid you know these screeching weasel records and then going there and meeting people that knew those guys and you know the smoking pope slapstick uh all all the bands that came out of that scene it was just such a wonderful place to to have a band and all the record stores and everything (laughs) it was insane so did we did we end up playing together i believe that we did I can't recall exactly where it was where it was at, and then of course we were label mates with you when you were signed to Capitol Records, and you got signed about a year before we did. Who was your A and R person there? Was it Perry? It was Matt Aberly. Okay, I didn't know Matt. Yeah, so that was ninety five for us, and so it was ninety six for you. It was November ninety five when we got signed, and I want to say they were just getting ready to reissue Born to Quit then. Yeah, I mean, I'm hazy on the exact dates. I know that Born to Quit came out on Johan's face in 94. And then somewhere in late 94, uh, we started talking to Capital, And we were, you know, that's when all the major label interest was happening for us. So 
we may have uh, begun negotiations with Capital in late 94, but it wasn't until 95 that they fully reissued Born to Quit. So we were an active Capital band in 95. And do you recall any other labels at that point uh, courting you guys or looking at you? Yeah, we were talking to Atlantic and we were talking to it, it started with uh, this guy named Jeff Salzman, who was managing Green Day at the time, called us up and asked if we wanted to be the first band on a label that he was starting, which was going to be an indie, but they were going to get funding from, from a major. And I can't remember the name of what that label was, but the fact that he called us kind of started this uh, this little bidding war, and it started the interest with with us. But we ended up talking to Atlantic, and I remember we... We also were uh, we were talking to people at Warner Brothers, which brings to mind this uh, this thing that I I still think about sometimes to this day. We were we were meeting with Warner Brothers and we were talking to uh, Danny Goldberg, who was the president of Warner Brothers at the time, and we're sitting in his office. We're, it's like on the Warner Brothers lot, so we were all freaked out. Like we went and had lunch in the cafeteria. And the, the cast of Full House was sitting at the next table. <laughs> and, but when we were in Danny Goldberg's office, he's talking to us. And I'm sitting on this couch. And next to me is a, is a table that has like a phone on it that has like a little digital screen on it, right? And so we're sitting there talking to him. And, and he gets his, his like secretary comes in. Uh, not comes in, but uh, her voice comes in over the intercom and says, uh, Jackson Brown, line one. <laughs> and, and, uh, he says to her, just have him wait. And so he keeps talking to us and he's saying whatever spiel he's giving us about why we should sign to Warner Brothers. And I look over to the phone that's on my right sitting next to me and I see on the little digital screen, it says Jackson Brown holding. <laughs> And for the life of me, I just could not pay any attention to what this guy was saying to me because the whole time I'm just thinking, Jackson Brown is sitting there waiting on us. Yeah. I am making Jackson Brown wait right now. And it was uh, it was something that burns itself into your psyche. And you just you're never the same after that. You know, I I love that you <laughs> thank you for sharing that, because you know how many stories I have that I can only tell other musicians. There's stories like that where you're like, you're not going to believe this, you know, and I could, right. I, I could I could sit here and talk for an hour. But, you know, here's the president of the label giving you a spiel. And you can't hear a word he's saying is all you're doing is staring at the at the phone where Jackson Brown is holding. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at this point, you know, you, you, you decide to go with Capital. They reissue Born to Quit. And you guys are out on the road. I know you uh, had opened up for Green Day around this time, and you're on the road touring a ton. And the next record was with Jerry Finn. Did Green Day come into play with that? Because of course Jerry uh, had worked with them. No, we we didn't uh, we didn't have any ongoing uh, communication with the guys in Green Day. I mean, we we had uh, we actually played with them once in Chicago when they came through touring for Dookie which was, was it 93 when that came out? Uh, Dookie was released in 94. Okay, so it was 94, but they were, and Dookie had like just just come out, and they came through Chicago, and they had us open for them, I think it was at the Riv. And so we met them, and then later, you know, when we were, when we were out 
in California, we ended up stopping by uh, Billy Joe's house and hanging out with him for an afternoon because we were also like, uh, we were getting some label interest from a label that like, it's all a blur to me now, but I know that at one, at one time we were over at Billy Joe's house and he was very gracious and he's really just, he was great to us. And, uh, but beyond that, like, that's the only contact that we had with them. We didn't actually tour with Green Day. There was just the, the one show and then another sort of cool afternoon over at Billy Joe's house. Okay. And do you recall cutting demos for the Destination Failure record? I know that we did. I think we recorded some of those at Solid Sound uh, in Hoffman Estates with Phil Bonet, who we'd worked with uh, a lot up till then. I remember that there was a version of the song Paul that we had demoed, uh, and it was a lot different. It was it was faster. It was called something else. A lot of the lyrics were the same, but it had a different chorus. And there's somewhere there exists a demo of that. Uh, Jerry Finn, correct me if I'm wrong, he was the first, I'll use the term, real producer you worked with. I mean, you'd work with Phil, but like this was like next level stuff because Born to Quit was already in the can when Capitol reissued it. So here you are now, and this is really your first proper record on Capitol. And the reason I asked you about the demos, do you recall Jerry hearing them? And, and what did he think about, in particular, the song we're going to talk about today? What, what did he think about Megan? I don't remember him saying anything specific about Megan. Uh, I remember him specifically having some things to say about other songs. There were parts of some of the other songs that he didn't like, that he wanted us to change. And we, of course, were very stubborn and insisted on keeping it our way. For example, there were a couple of solos, like the solo in uh, Pretty Pathetic, he didn't like that. And then there was he had a similar opinion of, uh, there's a musical interlude at the end of the song, uh, I Was Right. He called these our, our circus parts. Like they were too atonal and the guitar parts sounded goofy to him and he's like we got to get those circus parts out of there and we were like no man it's brilliant (laughs) we gotta we're sticking to our guns okay well uh, let's go back how many demos do you recall how many songs did you have written because i could be off the mark here but you strike me as a really prolific writer were any of the tracks on the record was megan a leftover uh did you have it sitting around or was it written specifically for destination failure megan believe it or not was written several years before that. It was written in 1992. Oh, wow. And I I just, you know, maybe about six months ago, I ran into Mass Giorgini, who was the guy who was the engineer who recorded our first album, Get Fired, that came out in 93. And he was telling me that he remembered the only demo that we sent him for any of the Get Fired stuff was an acoustic demo of Megan that wow. we didn't end up putting on that record. It was just like me and an acoustic guitar. So he pointed out, yeah, you guys decided you wanted to save Megan, which we ended up saving for two two albums. I don't 
specifically remember why we did that, but I sort of have a theory about why we would have done that. Okay, well, I'd like to hear the theory because it's interesting. The track is 9 out of 16 on the album. So, you know, typically a label is going to get involved at some point and go, here's your singles are up here around the, you know, the one to four or five position. It kind of seemed like Mm -hmm. it was buried in the record, but also there is just amazing songs in here. I know you love me. I know, I believe that the label, that was one that they had gravitated to. You mentioned pretty pathetic, which is, which is amazing, but there's something about this track. I know people have talked to you about this song. I I've watched live videos. There's something about this song. That's magic. It does seem to resonate with people. We get a lot of feedback about that song and it's one of those songs that gets a, 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 palpable response when we launch into it live. Although Capital did not gravitate towards it originally because it was it was one of the songs that we recorded in, in our first batch on Destination Failure and they they heard it and 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 the other songs and they said, you know, I we don't hear a single, so you got to go back in. And that's when I wrote I Know You Love Me. So you say first batch. That was when you, you went in and recorded the record. They didn't like it, and you went back in to tweak. Yeah. Okay. And was that with Jerry Finn, the initial recordings as well? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So all of Destination Failure was recorded in two studios, CRC, Chicago Recording Company. We were there for six weeks, and we recorded all the basic tracks, so all drums, bass, and Eli's uh, rhythm guitar parts were recorded in Chicago. And then we ran out of time because we were going long. So um, instead of extending our time at CRC, Jerry Finn suggested, uh, all we have left to do are your parts, Josh. So why don't, why don't the two of us just go out to LA and I'll get us a room at uh, Conway Studio and we'll do all your parts there. It'll be fun. It's a great studio. And uh, so I agreed to do that. So uh, the whole album was recorded sort of like every song has parts from two different states on it except for <laughs> except for I know you love me which was recorded later and that was recorded entirely at Conway so you said you wrote this song around 91 92 somewhere in there do you remember writing it yeah i do i do have some memory of the initial inspiration for the song I remember where I was when I got the initial spark of the song. It was in Crystal Lake, Illinois. I was living at uh, Mike, our drummer Mike's parents' house with him because, uh, you know, my parents had kicked me out for various reasons. And I, <laughs> I, was, I was living over at the family's house. And uh, there was this stoplight intersection in crystal lake where there were uh train tracks there was a railroad crossing there that you had to go through to get from from their little suburb into downtown crystal lake and so often you were caught at this at this railroad crossing and one time i was sitting there you know the bar was down the lights were flashing and the bell is dinging and um i just sort of got this weird picture of of being like you know what if i just drove around this thing and and it's not that i was suicidal i was just thinking poetically <laughs> uh <laughs> what, what what if i were to drive around this and just park on the tracks and wait for the train to hit me and i sort of was thinking about it in terms of um this movie called heaven can wait starring uh warren Beatty, which 
is really, if you've seen that movie, the, the premise of that film really informs the lyrics of the song, Megan, which I can kind of unpack for you if, if we're at that part in our discussion. <laughs> I don't want to jump ahead. No, uh, well, we're, we're going to get to that, to that lyrical part. I was just, yeah, I was asking, like, do, do you remember it? And it, it seems like it's pretty vivid. Did the lyric or the music come to you? Do you remember? I mean, obviously the idea, you're there at the train track, but how long after that initial thought did you pick up a guitar? Did you have an acoustic sitting in your car at that point, or where'd it go from there? No, I had an acoustic in my room at the Felmley's house, and I would get ideas, lyrical ideas or melodic ideas in my head when I was driving around and out doing stuff, and then I would go back to my room, pick up the guitar, and, and flesh it out musically. So it was a, it was a lyrical idea and a conceptual idea for the for the lyrical content of the song i don't remember if the specific melody came to me in the car there i just remember i remember part of it was i hear the train and i'm thinking about like you know being in a car that got hit by a train like what how what would that feel like and then uh i look in the rearview mirror and uh and that line from uh you know, there's a line in there about the bloodshot rearview mirror eyes are mine. That was me actually looking at myself in the rear view, like moments after I got the idea for the song. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, do you are you familiar with Pete Anna? He was the trombone player in Less Than Jake. He also played in Slapstick back in the day. No, Slapstick? That was uh, that was a Rob Kellenberger band. Yeah, it was. It was Rob Rob's band, of course. I know. I, I know you played with Rob before, but yeah, that was Rob. Yeah. That was Brendan Kelly from Lawrence Arms. Yeah. Uh, Dan Andriano. Yeah. So Pete was in that band, and so <laughs> I have such great memories of this record because Pete was touring with us in the late '90s when uh, this record came out, and we would play it all the time. And I actually consulted him for this episode because he's the biggest. I said. What song do I do, man? And I knew I wanted to go with this. And he, without dropping a beat, he said, Megan, immediately, <laughs> you know. And now I would like to, with your permission, Josh, to jump into the song. It's three minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, the intro is 12 bars total before the vocals hit. It's an overdriven single guitar panned off right for five bars. And it rings out there with a chord. On bar six, another guitar panned off left plays a bendy two-note little lick as the drums and bass come in for six more measures along with that same guitar that's panned off right, the main guitar there. This is the verse progression, and I got to tell you, the bass guitar tone here is absolutely ripping. It is so good. Jerry Finn's tones were just beautiful. And he also was a fan of panning hard left and, and hard right, which took us some getting used to. Uh, it's not necessarily, we hadn't done that. I don't think Phil Bonet ever did that in his mixes up to that point. But Jerry was into that and we were like, okay, man, it's sort of Beatlesy. Let's do it. Right. It's cool. Well, what I love about this track, just the production of it, is that Jerry knew, I think, when to get out of the way. Because this is a pretty minimalist track, what's going on here. It's all about that melody. But 
By the way, until three days ago when I started studying for this episode, I thought it was met her on a summer day. Not the lyric that I'm about to read, <laughs> butter on a summer day when she's around. I was on the tracks when the gate came down. Suddenly I recognized those bloodshot rearview mirror eyes as mine. You just mentioned that. Yeah. Butter makes more sense than metter, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> I was on the tracks when the gate came down. So I was apparently in in front there. I was the first car in line when that when that train gate came down. And I was like, what what if I had been, you know, one car length forward and the gate came down behind me? Just sort of like an abstract existential thought that launched me into this, you know, thinking about this idea that, as I mentioned, was inspired by the movie Heaven Can Wait. But, okay, before I even start to go down this road, I have to warn you that I feel like this song makes sense on an emotional level if you don't ask too many questions about it. (laughs) But the more you examine it, the more it, it raises up unanswered questions and it it sort of it it scares up more rabbits than it can shoot and uh i've had conversations with people where i try to dig into this and i realize like we've got to stop talking about this song because it's it's falling apart at the seams and that that might happen while we're talking now i got you okay but you'll see you'll see what i mean when when i start to tell you so if you've seen the, the the movie heaven can wait warren Beatty's character he's riding a bicycle he goes into a tunnel he gets hit by a truck in the tunnel and killed, right? And then his soul goes up to this uh, this kind of smoky platform where there's a uh, what appears to be a commercial airliner there waiting with people lined up to get on it. And it turns out that that is sort of a, a halfway point between Earth and presumably Heaven, so, like, they're, they're suggesting that you don't go straight to heaven. You sort of first go to this intermediate spot where you have to line up and get on an airplane that's going to take you to heaven. And he, of course, uh, feels like he's not ready to get on that plane, so he's, he starts to wander off and he, he, he tries to resist it. That's when Buck Henry comes over and, with his clipboard and tries to persuade him to get on the plane. So, M- Megan is... Heaven can wait, but a train rather than an airplane. So I'm thinking that if the train hits you, then then I'm and you die, then then I'm envisioning this other sort of train platform that is an intermediate area where you're then supposed to line up and get onto a train that's going to take you to your final spiritual destination. Um, so verse verse two is then you're on this, you know, uh, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself. But. Well, I, I, I want to ask before we go any further, was Megan a, a real person in your life? Uh, Megan was, our, our drummer Mike dated, briefly dated a girl named Megan. He ended up being married to a woman named Megan, but that's not, okay. <laughs> that, was, that was later. <laughs> that's later. He had a girlfriend named Megan who I didn't know well. And I, uh, it's, I just decided to use her name as a kind of muse for the song. I would do that sometimes. It's, it's not that I, 
I didn't have any particular relationship with this girl. I didn't know her well, and I wasn't trying to establish any kind of relationship with her by writing a song about her. I was just, uh, I was just always looking for inspiration for songs. That's awesome because very few artists on here have said, yeah, this is just kind of a story I created. It's typically about someone specific. So I love hearing that when I do. It's not often, you know, and and that's cool that you can just kind of pull this out and get this imagery from the train tracks. And, you know, yeah, I'm going to call it Megan. Yeah, he used to date this this woman. And just kind of how it comes together like that is, is fascinating to me. Yeah, but that was just sort of a name that was in our uh, in our consciousness at the time because there was a, a Megan hanging around. Well, here in verse one, uh, we stay stripped down pretty much like the intro. We don't even get that bendy two-note lick here halfway through that was at the top. And and Josh, I, I wrote these next notes just to how I kind of feel about the song. You know, I wrote here, so simplistic, and, and I say that with the utmost sincerity. It's not like it's a simple song and anyone could have written it. That's not what I mean. It's simplistic in texture, yet so heartfelt you couldn't have sounded more magical here if you piled on a hundred piece orchestra you know it's just it's honest you know it's if 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 i tried to sing i don't even know it could be in any context the word butter it would it would come off laughable you know and and there's a magic here i'm I'm not kidding there's there's a way that you sing this it's just it gives me a lump in my throat when I hear this song. I, I don't oh. exactly know why. It, it it absolutely moves me. The other thing I love about it, and I've talked about this a lot on the show, Josh, is there's no harmonies in this song. That makes right. it so much more personal to me. You know, that's just you singing to, to the listener or singing, you know, it, it's not a, a bunch of voices or you double tracking yourself. And, and, and I love that about it. Uh, the next part we get into is the pre-chorus, uh, first pre-chorus of the song. Another guitar comes in here, hard panned left. And that's what you're talking about that uh, Jerry was doing here. Uh, and again, subtle, not this huge part. It's just another guitar joins the party. I heard that whistle call my name. I almost drove away. So normally if you if you were on the tracks and the gate started coming down behind you, you would say to yourself, oh, this is bad. I better hurry up and scurry off these tracks. But here, here's a guy who uh, sort of hears the, the train whistle calling to him. And here's kind of why I st- start to say that there, there's... There's just unanswerable questions that are raised by these lyrics. So it's like the the guy who is the the main character in the song, the uh, protagonist, if you will, is he actually suicidal, like depressed? He seems to be in love with this girl, Megan, because as you see the story unfold, he's wanting to be united with her and uh, feels like, you know, he's going to he's going to meet up with her, like maybe if she's on the train. <laughs> that there's some sort of union that's going to take place if he's killed by the train that she's on or that she is going to meet up with him at that platform. Or maybe he's thinking he'll be killed and she'll be killed in the train wreck and they'll both be on the same platform to go to the same place. I think that's the most logical. I wasn't thinking all of that through when I wrote the <laughs> lyrics. I was just sort of feeling my way through. It was very intuitive. Well, if you could recall, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot. 
give me three examples as I know this has happened to you, three examples of fans that have walked up to you at a show or have written you an email and said, this is what this song means to me. Oh. Because here you, you as the writer, you just described it could be three or four different scenarios going on. And that's where it's kind of getting murky, you know, when you try to explain this song, because even in your head, which is fascinating what you're saying to me, I haven't heard anybody else in the show say that either, that, oh, I, I could have meant th- this many things about it. It's, it's usually it's one specific thing. It's not open to interpretation. Right. But there is something kind of nebulous and uh, ethereal about the storyline in this song that people ask me about and they've asked me about it a lot over the years and this is one where it doesn't seem like people have a definite idea about what's going on in this song which is why they keep asking me about it yeah (laughs) because they're like what's going on here so so you you get hit by the train or or not i'm like yeah have you ever seen heaven can wait and like not a lot of people have. Not people of my generation. It was more. It was like one of my mom's favorite movies. Okay, gotcha. so it's like more <laughs> people that are over fifty at this point would enjoy that film. But it's a really good movie. Well, I mean, and that's the same thing I've talked about, and you know this. A, a set of lyrics could mean you know something to fifty different people, you know, and that's the that's the beauty of it, the interpretation of it. Uh, the chorus, chorus one hits at the fifty second mark. We're already at chorus one. But Megan, I had a feeling that you would be on that train, so I just waited there for you. Yeah, the guy sitting in his car on the train tracks with the train barreling towards him, thinking that she, Megan, is on the train. And all I know is that the through line for me, as I was writing it, was this kind of emotional sense of yearning, that there was this sort of burning desire to be connected to this Megan girl. I don't, I hadn't fully fleshed out whether it was a, you know, a relationship that had been important and then it had ended. And so one, you know, did she dump him? Was it just an unrequited love? It, I don't know. The thing is, this guy was just desperately in love with this Megan girl, but didn't have her. She wasn't in the car with him. She was maybe on that train. So gripped by an overpowering desire to be with her, was he, that he would just sit there and wait for her to collide with him at that moment. And perhaps the two of their souls then would be thrust together uh, toward this heavenly destination, which takes us then into verse two. Hey everybody, we got to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but we got lots more with Josh Caterer coming right up. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits, to securing your music with DistroLock, 
DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. And now back to the show. What I love about the ambiguity of the lyric and everything that you're saying is still in that chorus, you know, at least the first two choruses you get. So I just waited there for you. And that's kind of like a universal. That's like the the end of every feel good movie. You know, the, the I waited there for you, you know, that yeah. anyone can get behind that lyric. And in the context of everything else, it works beautifully. Well, it's I think that that connects to the tone of the film which is you know it's pretty dark that uh that warren Beatty would get hit by a truck right at the beginning of the movie and the rest of the movie it's like in an in an m night sort of like sixth sense kind of a way like he's he's a dead person who is inhabiting someone else's body <laughs> so that that's pretty dark but the movie itself has like a light-hearted kind of Tony, you know, you got Buck Henry, you got Charles Grodin and Diane Cannon. There's a lot of laughs in the movie. And it's like, it sort of takes something heavy and gives it a light touch. Well, talking about that panning again, guitar panned hard left is doing a nice arpeggiated part. Uh, It's great. You can really, you know, talking about that panning, you can really pick out the notes. They're so isolated that it's a beautiful tone that's going on there. And the guitar right is playing rung out chords. And there's a guitar strumming right up the middle here, which I love. Do you remember having those conversations with Jerry? Like, hey, I want to bring a guitar right up the middle for this part, too. All that panning stuff was his idea, and we were we were all for it. Um, I do remember that I was the one who played the little two note thing at the beginning, the and I'm I'm pretty sure that Eli was the one who at that point was playing the descending sparse guitar part. Uh, I don't remember who did the jangly arpeggio thing in the chorus might have been Eli I feel like that was Eli I know I'm the one that played the actual guitar solo but you know the two of us kind of just swapped well I love what's going on here but in terms of that panning a lot of times you'll do stereo guitars that are you know they're a mirror image of each other and then like that little jangly arpeggio would kind of be like just maybe slightly panned right or pan left or something or maybe even in the middle but here that that arpeggiated part gets its own feature pan hard left and that strumming guitar right up the middle i just i love the way that the chorus makes me feel here it's it's great cool 
By the way, thank you. I mean, you're saying a lot of lovely things about the song, and I just want to, right now, I want to give you one big thank you for all of it. <laughs> I appreciate that you like this song so much. I, I do. I, I love it. This song, like I said, it, 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 it moves me. It's uh, absolutely brilliant. Verse two. Caught a ride to another town where the air was clean and the sun never goes down. Everyone was standing in a line between the landing and the stairs. And before we talk about this, this lyric, Josh, uh, we got the same instrumentation here pretty much as verse one. And as I'm listening to these lyrics, it, you know, when I comb through these songs for the show, I'm listening to them again almost for the first time. And I'm picking out things and I'm noticing here that there's no rhyme scheme whatsoever. And sometimes you want to hear a rhyme scheme in a song. Sometimes when it doesn't happen, it sounds really forced. This just sounds like someone kind of downtrodden that just picked up a guitar that's singing from their heart. You know, it's not a ton of stuff here, as we said, the, the production wise. And, you know, were the lyrics exactly as we hear them here or did they go through a, go through a change? Do you recall? I think the lyrics have been the same since I first wrote the song. So the thing that, that is kind of repetitive about it and that ties it together is that it's the same melody that repeats itself, even if the lyrics don't rhyme. Right, right. Well, what's happening here, verse two, lyric-wise? And I, lo- I absolutely love the line, caught a ride to another town where the air was clean and the sun never goes down. Well, yeah, as I said, that that's that... That's that picture of the, the, the scene from Havoc and Wait where right after he dies, he goes to the... In the movie, it's not a sunny place. It's like it's all gray and there's smoke everywhere. So he's walking in like, uh, you know, they have just have these dry ice smoke machines or whatever where the smoke comes up to your knees. And they're just all... And there's literally just a line of people that are standing waiting to go up this staircase to get onto this commercial uh, airliner. And so that that is very specifically what I wanted to um, describe. So that like describing that in that way was more important than coming up with a rhyme for it. Well, yeah. And sometimes, though, you know this, when you write something verbatim of your thoughts, which sounds like there's some stuff here that's like that, it just it comes off sounding corny and this is everything but that it's just it it does tell this story i i wouldn't think it was as verbatim as some of the stuff that you're saying as abstract as the song is it's it you know as as you're explaining i'm going back and reading these now going hmm yeah that 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 makes sense yeah and the more i talk about this movie heaven can wait it's gonna it's gonna come across like this is my favorite movie of all time or i think it's one of the greatest movies ever made which isn't really true it's just that I mean, it's a good movie, but it just was an interesting, an interesting concept. I've always kind of been drawn, even from a very young age, drawn towards films and art that kind of deal with these sort of existential questions of like what happens to you after you die and, you know, different takes on what that could be like. Like, for example, the movie Defending Your Life with uh, Albert Brooks, he almost has a different take on the same idea that after you die your your soul would go to this kind of in-between place it's but in that case it's like a 
a city that you go to and you get sent to this hotel that you're staying at uh, while you're awaiting this uh, judgment that's going to happen in front of a panel of people. <laughs> like, I just love, there's something about like taking something super heavy and existential and like making jokes out of it. And like old Woody Allen movies were good at that, like love and death. You know, I've always loved that sort of thing. So that, so that, the fact that this, that's what this movie does, just sort of like stuck in my thinking and, and wanted me to create a song that, that dealt with it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because some of my favorite movies aren't great movies necessarily, or, you know, what the way they moved me or gave me inspiration for something. It could be a terrible movie, but it's something that was, you know, part of your childhood. Your mom watched it. It just became like, you know, a part, a part of your growing up that somehow made it into a, a beautifully amazing song. Uh, pre-chorus two comes right after verse two. I heard somebody call my name. I almost climbed the stairs. Same instrumentation here as pre-chorus one, but we get a different lyric, and I think you kind of addressed this just now. Yeah, and the heard somebody call my name, that was a reference to what would be the Buck Henry character in Heaven Can Wait, where where Warren Beatty is like sort of wandering off into the mist, and Buck Henry is calling after him. Hey, wait a minute. No, you're, you, you need to get on this plane. You need to go up the stairs. And so that I imagine that's what would be happening to me. And I like, I almost did it, but then I would, I would look around and see like, she's not here. Like I, I did this so that she would meet me here and we're going to go together. We're going to be together again. And, uh, and she's not. So then I, I just sit down and I'm like, no, I'm waiting here until she shows up. Total lyric envy right now. You know, I, I wish I could get that kind of inspiration and jot it down on paper that would be poetic and artsy and there'd be some merit to it. But if I try to write like this, Josh, it just for me, it, it just doesn't work for other people. For other people, it does. And that's that's what just trips me out so much about this whole songwriting thing. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start start the show, the podcast, it's just it's so intriguing to me where people come from, where they draw their inspiration. I mean, what you're telling me here is absolutely like so left of center in my mind, but, mm. but at the same time makes absolute sense as you're, as you're explaining it to me. Chorus two. But Megan, I had a feeling that someday you'd meet me there. So I just waited there for you. We get a lyric change here uh, on the first half. Someday you'd meet me there. Uh, yeah. Same instrumentation as chorus one, but we get a new lyric there. So if she wasn't if she wasn't on that train and she didn't die as a result of that collision, she certainly would die someday. And eventually she would show up on this platform. And I was apparently uh, intent on waiting there until she did, so that we could go together. Interesting. I'm. I'm. <laughs> that's. Th this is so much darker than I ever thought <laughs> you were going to explain to me today. And uh, right. And 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 you know, Matt Skiba's like, Matt Skiba's built a career out of lyrics like this, as you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love you, uh, Matt. You just have to, <laughs> I don't mean that as a knock. You just have to have a. You just have to have a dark turn of mind, I guess. It's so, it's so rad. Well, uh, guitar solo comes in after chorus two for 12 bars. Uh, 
believe you played this whole solo. Yeah, I remember playing it, and I remember writing. I remember writing the solo because it's really interesting. Because the first four bars are just like this slightly overdriven guitar panned barely left. Then on bar mm-hmm. five through twelve, the longer part of the solo, another guitar is panned barely right. This guitar's more overdriven. The stereo guitars are behind it, panned right and left, ringing out. There's chords on every beat there, and on bars five through twelve here. Uh, the solo is played over the chorus chord progression, which sets up beautifully for going into verse three. It's awesome. I remember playing this solo on my uh, Telecaster. I had a blonde Telecaster that was the same guitar that appeared in the video for Need You Around. I'm playing a yellow Telecaster, which I did not play on the song Need You Around because when we recorded Born to Quit, we had cheaper guitars. We had all like, we had the, the, the Mexican made tellies that were cheaper. And I had a blue one that I was, that I played for that. But then we signed to Capitol and I immediately went out and bought this nicer American made blonde Telecaster that I used in the video. And then I used it on some of the tracks on Destination Failure. Although for most of my rhythm tracks on that album, I was using a, uh, a gold top Les Paul that belonged to Jerry Finn and was playing through uh, an amp that belonged to Jerry Finn. He had a lot of spectacular musical gear and he had this uh, this Marshall amp that was like a signature slash model Jubilee 800 amp. I, maybe you're more, I'm not that m- much of a gearhead. No, but like, I, I, I know that I know the amp you're talking about. Cause Rob Cavallo yeah. talked to me about the same amp. It, he had Jerry Finn had modded this thing out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I played almost all of my rhythm tracks on destination failure through that amp with a, with a gold top Les Paul that belonged to Jerry Finn. But on this particular song, I remember using my telly because we wanted that twang. And it's funny that you, bring up Rob Cavallo. I was listening to your uh, episode where you were talking to Blake from Jawbreaker, and you mentioned this little story you had about Rob Cavallo, about how he said he was going to give you a cassette of Jawbreaker's new version of Boxcar that they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he never he never did. Yeah. And they, I, I found it on YouTube years later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I have a I have a related story of Rob Cavallo because when we were, because, you know, him, him and Jerry Finn were uh, friends. Yeah. And when we were making Destination Failure, at one point, Rob Cavallo stopped by the studio and was talking to him. And he was talking all about how the project that he was working on at the time was a Lindsey Buckingham solo album at a different studio in town. And I was like, oh, man, I'm like a huge Lindsey Buckingham fan. Like, and he was like, oh, I'll take you over there someday. Just I'll, I'll call you, you know, like next time I'm in, I'll, I'll ask if I, I can have somebody stop by and I'll let you know. And you can you guys can come over and meet Lindsay. I was like, oh, my goodness. Then then for like for weeks after that, I had this underlying sense of terror that any day I was going to be called upon to go over and meet Lindsey Buckingham and I was going to make a fool of myself and not know what to say to him. And I kept thinking about like, what am I going to ask Lindsey Buckingham? Um, do I just play it cool and just sort of be like, yeah, what's up? Or like, do I have a bunch of questions for him about like, you know, how did you, uh, you know, total geek out on him? Yeah. Like production questions about how you made Tusk or, you know, what do I ask him? 
<laughs> and uh, but of course, uh, Rob Cavallo never came through. He did. He never. So like, I think there's a bunch of stories about him making empty promises to bands. Um, I I, I have one, but we, I won't I won't take it too far here, but uh, won't get too off subject. But yeah, he he promised us an, a night to hang out with my band with Stevie Nicks, who he was producing <laughs> at the time. That, that didn't happen. So there's a fleet with that connection. I gotta yes. say, when you said you had a fear, and you said it was a fear of going over there, I mean, I thought you said where you were going with it was you had a fear of Rob taking you over there, but the joke was on you. It wasn't going to be Lindsay, but it was going to be Jackson Brown. <laughs> right. And he was still mad about He's still, being on hold. <laughs> He's still pissed off about being on hold. He has not forgotten. Yeah. He has not forgotten. He's like, I was on hold for 25 minutes and it's your fault. Well, out of the guitar solo, I'm going to try to reel it back in here. Out of the guitar solo, we come into verse three. And, and Josh, you know, looking back on all the lyrics here, I mean, there's a recurring hook, Butter on a Summer Day. It makes another appearance here, and of course, we'll get to it at the end of the song, but Butter on a Summer Day, when I hear that name. Yeah. It's a dream that never came true. I do remember, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I am remembering that when this when this idea initially came to me and I, I was there and, and, and I got the spark, uh, it was summertime and it was it was warm out, and I think... I remember having a car where the air conditioner didn't work particularly well. So I was conscious of the temperature. And so that played into that line of just being butter that melts. Again, the lyric the lyric is awesome. Think about what that says. Butter on a summer day when she's around. You just you, abs- you absolutely melt. Uh, the, the lyric is butter mm-hmm. on a summer day when I hear that name. It's a dream that never came true. Sat down on the tracks and waited for a train to take me back to you. So this is another of those unanswered questions, like, it's a dream that never came true. So is this, is he saying that his dream of her meeting him on that platform didn't come true? Or is the entire relationship a dream that didn't come true? Is this somebody that he fantasized about, but she either rejected him to begin with, or he never had the courage to talk to her in the first place? I don't know. Somehow it's... Just a, it's an unfulfilled longing. It, it seems more like that feeling of uh, just being destroyed by an unfulfilled longing for a person is what was driving the narrative forward there and not to think too hard about like what some of those questions are. I'm just speaking for myself here, and, and I, I, I mean this. I think you could have sang anything here. And I'd still get I'd still get the same feeling, me personally. Oh, just because of the melody? Because of the melody and just how soft your voice is, your delivery, your enunciation, the 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 feeling of it. Like I said, I, I've talked about it on the show before, Josh, where sometimes you can say, yeah, I, I believe that vocal, that, that person sold it. Uh, other times it doesn't hit you a certain way because maybe they didn't sell or, or, or for whatever reason. We, we don't know what's going to hit us and what's not. But, you know, I think the lyrics in the song are amazing. But I'm again, speaking just for me, I'm not so sure that they could have been anything and it, it would have hit, hit me the same way. And that's what I love about it. I feel like I wouldn't have consciously said this at the time, but but looking back on the time period where we recorded it, I think that this was a layer, like a sub layer of what was happening for me kind of emotionally is that there was something magical 
for me about the fact that I was recording my vocals in, uh, I mean, the studio was located in Hollywood and I was staying at a hotel like right on uh, Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And, you know, I'm talking about, I've been, uh, this whole time I've been talking about this movie, Heaven Can Wait. So I'm obviously a big film buff and uh, there's something magical to me about, about film and as, you know, I'm talking about movies that my mom used to watch. And so from a very young, formative age, the magical worlds that are created in movies are, are a place where I have wanted to live. And so for me to be recording this song that was really inspired by a film starring these movie stars, and I was probably pretty close to the place where this uh, was actually where the movie was made, you know, and like Warren Beatty, I was probably within only a few miles of him at the time when I was recording that <laughs> vocal. So this is all trip. You know? This is all tripping you out as, as this is going and, on. Yeah. And so I'm just saying that to, to be in Hollywood, California had, had a profound and like tangible impact on how I was feeling. And so I think that that probably crept into my delivery and my sense of connectedness to the lyric that's so that's so cool well uh pre-chorus three we get yet another lyric somebody came and took my hand i finally had to go but make Somebody came and took my hand. I finally had to go. Same instrumentation uh, as pre-chorus one uh, and pre-chorus two. And then we get into, but Megan, I just want you to know, and here's the lyric change, that I waited as long as I could. So you're pointing out that there are, there are lines that repeat themselves, but they're followed by different lines where I'll take like what seems like it's going to be a repeating part and change. I love that. That's something that I tend to do. Sometimes I can throw myself off and it makes me forget lyrics when I'm on stage because the <laughs> lyrics are like too similar yeah. and I can't remember if I'm in the first verse or the third verse. And the only time you know is when you get off stage and you're, you're, you know, you're hanging out by the merch booth and someone comes up and goes, you realize you sang pre-chorus one the second <laughs> time and you're like, ah, oh, thanks dude. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I thought that might be happening. Well, at the last line here, that I waited as long as I could, the whole band rings out. And then that one guitar from the top comes back in. But on a summer day when she's around. Butter on a summer day when she's around. And that just says, again, that lyric says so much about what this person does to you. I'm calling this last little part here the outro. It could also be a, considered a coda, I think. And uh, the it, it's interesting, my take on this last part here, Josh. It, it It's a start of another verse, essentially. Like, this feeling will never go away. Like, it's a cliffhanger. You know, like that, like it's still going on, but you as a listener don't know. It's, it's a, it's kind of eerie the way this ends. And then does it kind of suggest a, to be continued, like, um, because you've shifted in the first verse from 
butter on this on a summer day when she's around and then it shifts to a butter on a summer day when i hear that name so he's not with her he's just hearing about her but then again it's a reference to her being around so are we to believe that they were united at some point in the great beyond and that was the beginning of a of a, another verse that never came to be at least not in the physical realm that well it's interesting you point that out. that's the vibe i get from it like this isn't over you know but at the same time you guys capped it at the very end with this big major you know f sharp chord this boom it's like where did this come from you know and it's 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 a strange but perfect ending well again Thank you. I'm glad you feel it's perfect. It's one of those things where, like, it's interesting to sit around and, like, examine some work that you did after the fact and to sort of feel like it it makes it seem more like everything was intentional and that there was more of uh, a, a strategy to all of it. When really at the time, I love that there. I love that there wasn't almost everything that, had, and I'm sure this is the case with uh, a lot of people that you talk to. Like when these things were actually being put together, it was all just was from the gut, you know. But then you look back some years later and go, "Oh, actually, that that sort of makes more sense to me now than it did consciously when we were doing it." Yeah, when when you're going through whatever it is, it could be the a thunderstorm in a relationship or, or, or a family member passing. You may not realize at the time how that influences you till you can reflect, you know, uh, at, at a later date and look back. Before I completely forget, I had mentioned that I I have a theory about why we saved the song for so long, and I want to share that with you. Yeah, please. <laughs> because the song was written in. Uh, 1992, and I I haven't. It's been years since I would have heard the acoustic demo. I don't know exactly what the acoustic demo sounds like, but I know now when I listen to the Destination Failure recording of the song, there's a certain subtlety to the arrangement, like the way that it's it's driven by this guitar part that's pretty sparse, and the the thing that fills that in is the bass the bass line. Oh yeah. So you sort of need the bass line to make sense out of the guitar part. They, they work in conjunction with each other. Um, but I think that's a level of arrangement sophistication that we did not possess in 1992 or 93. Yeah. And I feel like, um, although I, I don't recall specifically the process, I'm sure that Jerry Finn was speaking into that and like helping us to kind of show restraint in the way that we were doing some of our guitar parts. And probably the way that I wrote it was just, it was just strumming you know, just kind of like more aggressive strumming. And my, my theory, although I don't remember, uh, is that probably uh, that we had the sense that that it was a pretty good song, but we had not yet come up with an arrangement that sort of did justice to the song. And it wasn't until we got to Destination Failure and started working with Jerry that we felt like we actually had the the talent and the resources at our disposal to be able to do justice to the song with Jerry's help. And so that's why we saved it that long. That's awesome. And I'm kind of glad that we did, although like it would have been really interesting to hear the Born to Quit version of it because Phil was a genius in his own way, but it would have been different, Mm -hmm. you know? And I don't regret, I don't, I don't regret waiting. I I feel the way that it showed up on Destination Failure was just as it was 
meant to be. Absolutely. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for, for sitting in and breaking this down. And before we break, I uh, got anything to leave the listeners with what you have going on with the band. What's happening? Um, well, we're, we're starting to track new stuff. We're going in uh, actually this coming weekend to um, record a couple of songs, uh, a cover, and then the first new original Pope song that we have recorded in about five years. And it's going to be the beginning of uh, what will become the first Pope's album in that many years. So we're very excited. That's awesome, man. Well, once again, thank you so much. This has been, been a blast. It's been a blast for me, too. Thanks, Chris. I know that you love me Man, that episode was great. I can't wait to talk about that one with Chris in the rap segment that's coming up, as well as the band you might not know. It's all coming up right after a few quick words from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Pass to Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come baby come and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and a short bio to band you might not know at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Shrug Dealer, a four-piece melodic punk rock band from New York City. You can find their music on Bandcamp, and their most recent album is called Infested. Here's a snippet of their song, The Call of Epigon. And Chris. Chris, I'm glad we finally got Josh on the show. He has been very often requested by listeners for what seems like years now, and he couldn't ask for a better song. It's so cool, too, that he had so many memories of actually writing the song, considering he wrote it 
decades ago. I know. Yeah, it was you know written a full five years before Destination Failure was released, and I thought it was a really cool admission uh, near the end when he you know basically said, "I don't think we were ready as a band to to track this song," and 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 that's so cool because you don't really I think know those things at the time. It's something you have to reflect on later. You you don't know like you know no one at twenty years old has a governor that you know, strong that says, you know what, I I better wait. I'm not up to snuff yet with my songwriting to to release this, but I'm glad they did. I feel like you've asked so many people like, was this from the previous album's writing or did you write it specifically for this album? I feel like 50 people in a row said, no, we wrote it for this album. This is the first time, definitely the first time that I think someone said, no, this was from like two albums ago. And it's just, we, we held on to it for that long. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Finally, someone <laughs> had written the song a long time ago. And you're right, maybe it was subconsciously. It is a really emotional song. You know, there's really something, you used the word a couple times in this episode that there's something magical about the delivery of this song. And there really is. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I, he really knew where I was coming from near the end, Chris, when I said to him, and I, 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 I really thought I could say this the way I did. I didn't think he was going to take it the wrong way because I think the lyrics are beautiful to this. But as I said, I think he could have sang anything here and it would have hit me the same way. Yeah. Hey, I never once ever took away from the lyrics of this song that anyone was maybe dying. I never, (laughs) for some reason, I never put that together, but I did. And I heard him use this turn of phrase. I did feel the emotional sense of yearning. That is the feeling that the song conveys. I think that's why it resonates with so many people. And really, it's his delivery. It's the, you said, the personal nature of his delivery. It's Mm -hmm. just the solo vocals. There's no harmonies that honestly, as a melody guy, it wouldn't really even matter what the exact story is to me. Yes, the Butter on a summer day when she's around, that's such a great lyric that you can really grab onto. But the specifics of what the song is about didn't matter to me. It was just how it made me feel. Yeah, and I can't recall a a time on the show where someone's been like, well, yeah, I don't really know what this part means. It could mean this, but it could mean this, but it could mean this. And my head was about to explode at one point going, wow, this is such a different take uh, you know, on on where this emotion, where this inspiration came for a lyric, it was it was very different. So much from that movie. I've never seen that movie. Have you seen that movie? No, Evan I have Boyd? not. No, I want to see it now. Yeah, <laughs> and you know what else I think is really interesting and makes me like this song is that I have no sense when this song ends that the narrator, that being Josh in this song, the the person in the first person perspective and Megan, this the muse of the song got together. It's and I think that'd be way less interesting if the end of this song was, oh, and then we got together and I love you happily ever after. I think it's way more interesting that either a he's waiting for her and she never shows up. That's so relatable and it hits you so hard. That's where that lump in the throat might come, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about yeah. how sad that is or that's just left to the imagination. Maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. I think that's the way more artistic and beautiful way to end this song. I love it. And it makes me think, man, <laughs> it makes me think of another band and another lyric. Uh, when you're talking about that final lyric of the song, it makes me think of, I, I don't know if you're as big of a fan as I am, Chris. I've tried to get him on the podcast, but they might be giants. 
in what's probably their biggest song, Don't Let's Start. They have this lyric, and I watched a documentary about them where it was just a bunch of different people. Two people I remember talking about this lyric were Mark Hoppus was in it talking about mm-hmm. it, and Sarah Silverman <laughs> was talking about it. This one lyric, which is, no one in the world ever gets what they want, and that is beautiful. Everybody dies frustrated and sad, and that is beautiful. I think that's one of the most amazing lyrics ever. It's <laughs> it's way less interesting to me that, that something would be so happy and everybody gets what they want. You know, that's yeah. not real life. Yeah, no, and, and there's a lot of ambiguity with this song, but at the end, I, I called it a coda here, this little outro. It, it it makes you feel like it's a cliffhanger. Like my emotions with this song, they're not resolved. It's it's uh, kind of morose. It's kind of you use the word a, a yearning. Um, it's 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 sad. It's all these emotions rolled into one. But then there's like a glimmer of hope at the end of this. Almost like there's a part two to <laughs> to, to the song that that you know it isn't there. It's I don't know a lot a lot of emotions with this one. And you know I recall hearing this as I said a ton back on the tour bus in the late '90s. This was like a record that we listened to for like a year straight. Uh, our old trombone player Pete would all play it and to go back to this and I had mentioned to Josh that it, I love this so much the show and I've, I've talked about it where I I feel like I'm listening to these songs for the first time and 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 this song was just so many so many things jumped out of me he used the word I think this is the word I was looking for I kept saying the song simple he used the word sparse and that I, I, I'm going to remember that word. That's a great word to describe a song like this. It's not overblown. It doesn't need to be. And man, I've heard him play this song acoustically, and it's just as, as spine tingling as, as this. Well, one thing that you didn't bring up to him that I thought you were going to talk about for sure, and we have to talk about here in the rap, is his voice. He has one of those voices that he could sing one word and you're like, Oh, that's smoking popes. You know, mm-hmm. and it's so recognizable and that just helps with that. Yeah. The, the music in this song is sparse. Yeah. That's a great descriptive word of what this song is, but his voice, it's so powerful and it's so unique, <laughs> you know, it, you don't need much to, uh, just the, the music just serves to enhance his voice and his delivery, man, it's so good. Yeah, I was really, really glad that, that uh, he came on. It was, geez, it was only a couple of weeks ago that I just, you know, cold hit him up on Instagram. And, and next next thing you know, he hit me back, said he'd love to be on. And also found out he's a fan of the show. He's listened to a couple episodes, which is absolutely great. And speaking of fans of the episodes, that's you guys out there listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. If you haven't already, head over to ChrisDemakes.com and sign up for our supporting cast where you get bonus episodes each week chris and i talk about a myriad of subjects and we talk about them well i think we talk about them well chris it's a great podcast the after party i'm kind of sad that it's only (laughs) to members of the supporting cast because we put so much love into it and it's so fun and good that you know we really appreciate everyone who joins the supporting cast at christamakes.com and i think that Anyone who's a member could attest to the fact that the after party is its own thing that's different than this podcast, but just as fun. Absolutely. And hey, I'm still writing those custom songs. If you'd like a custom song for you or that special someone or a jingle for your business, hit me up at Christamakes at gmail.com. I'd love to write you a song. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I want to thank this week's guest, Josh Caterer, for sitting with us, and we'll see you next week. 
Hey, Chris Makes a Podcast producer, Chris Fafalius here. You may have heard me talk about my band Punchline before. Maybe you already know us, or maybe you're hearing about us for the first time right now. It doesn't matter. No matter what your relationship with Punchline is, I will absolutely guarantee that you'll love our new podcast, A Band Called Punchline. Starting with our humble beginnings in a small town in southwestern Pennsylvania in 1997, we're telling the hilarious, strange, and hopefully inspiring story of the 25-plus years of our band in the most honest way possible, podcast style. A Band Called Punchline is an audio documentary available now wherever you get your pods, so subscribe and let me and my friends share a wild, entertaining, unique, and wonderful tale of music and perseverance unlike any other that's still being written today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.